The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. this next verse with me as the last. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. And then I want to add to it a New Testament short passage. First Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory Like the flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. May God help us to understand his holy word today. I was told actually by one of you something I was not aware of about an evangelical pastor well-known on national television who recently caused a bit of a public relations flap when he criticized people who insisted upon making a large point of the infallibility or inerrancy of the Bible. This man, who would wish to be an evangelical, and I truly hope he is, stated something that I think is erroneous when he said, it is next to impossible to defend the entire Bible as to its accuracy. And he went on to say, all we really need to do in our preaching is to tell people the Bible says, because the important thing is that the Bible points us to Christ, and Christ is the one from whom we must hear. I wonder if you're understanding what this man is saying exactly. He's saying, we need to listen to Jesus. Well, that sounds very good, but he has more or less cut the ground out from under his own feet when he's saying, we need to hear from Jesus even if his word comes to us from a fallible source, for we can't be sure about the Bible. We can't be sure about its accuracy in every uh, possible way. Well, my friends, I think that man is badly mistaken. If he wants to hear from Jesus, he has to hear from Jesus in the only revelation God has given us of Jesus Christ, the Word of God. And if we would say that that Word might be mistaken or filled with wrong assumptions or myths or even deceptions or omissions, then we cannot know accurately what Jesus has to say. Today, in our eighth consideration of this subject of why we can trust the Bible, we've asked a lot of questions about, about inspiration and authority and revelation and different subjects. Today, we deal with a big and hard subject, but put simply, it is, are there errors in the Bible? Now, we could spend a whole lot of time on this subject dealing with specific texts and problems and things that are suggested to be errors. 
But let me tell you this, you may not be aware of this, but if you deal at all with theological controversy or with what happens in seminaries or among denominations, you may be aware that among conservative Protestants over the last century or more, there probably has been no single theological word that has stirred up more heat, often without light, than the whole discussion of the inerrancy of the Bible. The basic question that we're asking is, is it true or possible that we can ascribe to the original Hebrew and Greek editions of our biblical text, Old Testament and New, a complete freedom from human mistakes in terms of historical fact and doctrine that is taught? Is it sensible to believe in the inerrancy of the Bible? Christian college and seminary professors have lost their jobs over this issue. And I will be very blunt, there are some who should lose their jobs yet. Because if someone takes a salary from a, an institution that claims publicly that it upholds the inerrancy of God's Word, which numerous schools do, and yet that person teaches the erroneous nature of the Scripture or something missing in the Scripture, that person is dishonest. They are receiving a salary dishonestly, and this occurs today in nominal Christian schools, I can guarantee to you. A definition is needed of what we're talking about. A couple of decades ago, there was an organization that operated in the 1970s and 80s until it completed a task of drawing together various studies and documents. Dr. James Boyce of Philadelphia chaired that organization, the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, and they produced a lot of defining documents. If you're interested in this subject, go to look that up, International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. you easily find it in a computer search. Here is one summary statement they came out with that I believe is helpful and orients us. Let me quote it. It's several sentences. They said, God, who himself is truth and speaks truth only, has inspired Holy Scripture in order to reveal himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as Creator, Lord, Redeemer, and Judge. Holy Scripture is God's witness to himself. Scripture being God's own word written by men and superintended by his Spirit is of infallible divine authority in all matters on which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, and embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. The authority of Scripture, they said, is inescapably impaired if its divine inerrancy is limited or disregarded. Such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. You find that you really do have to make a fundamental choice. Are you going to approach the Word of God as being perfect in the sense of God's own perfection, or is it some kind of a jumbled mass of human writings that got some things right and can sometimes show you God and Christ, but other times is simply wrong? I have two main points to put across to you today. One if you're interested in these things, follows deductive logic, that is, 
I start with a generalization that then applies to specifics. The second point starts with specifics and then draws a generalization. Listen to this first point. I state it this way. The Bible's inerrancy is a sound presupposition based on God's perfect authorship. Everybody in the world approaches this life and thinking or whatever we we do in thinking about God with presuppositions. You have ideas that are innate to your mind when you begin to study something. People will deny that. They'll say, no, my mind starts as a blank slate, and then they show it to us that it's still a blank slate. But uh, most everybody has presuppositions, some things that you assume are true, and then you move forward to say, well, well, do these things check out? Do they actually work? I'm saying to you that many of us would say the Bible's inerrancy is a sound presupposition to begin with based on God's perfect authorship. We're deductively thinking here. We're starting with God who is the height of perfection. God who is the very basis of everything that is excellent and beautiful and complete and right and accurate in the universe. We start out thinking Scripture is like that because God is like that and He's the author. I had you read that portion, short portion of Psalm 119 with me because of the opening verse 89 where the psalmist said, Forever, Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. You know, we have just down the road here a little ways in Oregon Pike. I always come from my home, which I'm coming from the north to going south, and there's a billboard just down the street on the opposite side that is constantly changing. I'm always amazed because I'll, I'll go by and it will have changed. I've never seen anybody change it. It's like magic. Uh, you know, one day it says this, and then the next day it's advertising something else. Well, God's Word is not like that. It's not a temporary billboard that he puts up and there's going to be some other advertisement for another product there tomorrow. Your word is firmly fixed in the heavens, says Psalm 119.89. And then I also wanted you to catch that, that other uh, verse 96 that's in there, which your hymnal has the text of the New International Version, and I think it has a slightly better cast of the meaning in English than our ESV that we commonly use does have. There's no perfect translation. Verse 96 says, I have seen a limit to all perfections, but your commands are boundless. Boundless perfection. When have you ever experienced that in anything in the work of man? Last weekend, Carol and I were not with you because we were at a family funeral in another state and got to talk to some relatives. And one lady was there who's a favorite person to me, and she teaches literature to middle and high school students. And I have an interest in great novels and particularly American literature. So I probed her a question I've asked other literature teachers. I said, what is, in your opinion, what is the greatest American novel? Now, this is a great subject to discuss with literature teachers, and they all have their own opinion. And she said, right away, without hesitating, Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. And I wasn't surprised because that one often uh, hits the the list of top great American novels. So I came back to her. I said, well, mine's 
The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, a book which, if they assigned you to read it, you probably didn't read. But uh, you should. It's a truly great book. And so we discussed literature a little bit and, you know, a few other options. And if there had been four other English teachers there, they would have had four other opinions. The point was there's no one book that is the greatest novel that anybody can definitively say. And certainly neither of us would have argued that Mark Twain wrote a perfect book or Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote a perfect book. We were just saying they both wrote good books. But the psalmist is saying what God has written and given forth as his revelation is in a class by itself. It's not a subjective opinion list of, you know, what's the greatest Bible ever written. There's only one. There's only the word of our everlasting God, which is, the psalmist says, boundless perfection. Now, I could have based this sermon on, and I didn't, Psalm 19. We used that uh, about a month ago in looking at this general subject. Psalm 19 tells us the heavens are telling the glory of God, and it talks about creation as a revelation, and then it goes on to talk about the written revelation. And I could have reminded you of Psalm 19, 7 through 12, which says the law of the Lord, or the Scripture, is perfect. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. And that psalmist concluded by saying, who can discern God's errors? It's as if he was saying, does anyone have the effrontery, the boldness, to step forward as a human being and say, aha, I have found an error that God made? The psalmist says, no, no one dares to say that because God has no errors. Well, the essence of the authority of Scripture is its remarkable power. The way it is not just instructive to us or, or somehow inspirational, but it actually has a power within it to compel our belief and our obedience. And that's because of its entire truthfulness. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the author there says in Hebrews 6.18 that there are two unchangeable things in which God Uh, two unchangeable things, God's oath and his promises, in which it is impossible for God to lie. Are you really going to step forward and say, you know, God's word is like that billboard down the road that, that changes and has a different message every day of the week and cancel out yesterday's message? Here's a new one for today. No. God's word is boundless perfection. It's eternal in the heavens. Another psalm, 12, 6, David writes there and says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace, purified seven times. It's not enough that it's purified. It's purified seven times over as the purest possible silver, the words of God. Jesus affirmed this. He constantly affirmed the factual accuracy of the Old Testament as God's written word. He spoke about Adam and Eve as knowing they were real historical persons. Jonah in the belly of the fish was a historical event. Opening of the Red Sea or any other miracle was something that happened in history to Jesus as as Scripture reported it. And so the apostles likewise chime in and naturally see these things constantly go back and say, did not the Scripture say, or this came to fulfill the Scripture? Because they saw entire truthfulness in the speech of a God who was an author who could not 
lie. And so they would say, when you hear the Scripture, you're hearing God himself. The Scripture cannot be broken, Jesus said. It's all of one piece with God and who he is, and it has all of God's own character. Well, there's a second point we can look at, and it sort of turns it around and and starts with the specific things and argues towards a general conclusion. And what I mean by that is we simply have to say to somebody, if you believe the Bible is not inerrant, please show me an error. Let's be specific. Talk to the smart aleck who comes to you and says, oh, you don't believe the Bible, do you? Everybody knows. Everybody knows. The Bible's full of contradictions. I love that when they say that. I don't get that often enough. I wish, I wish people in the sidewalk would walk up to me and say, everybody knows the Bible's full of contradictions. I'd pull out my Bible and say, okay, I'm, I'm ready. Let's talk. Here's a park bench. Let's sit down. Show me the ones you have in mind. That person's going to run in the other direction because I guarantee you they cannot show you They just know that, oh, everybody knows. Well, if everybody knows it, it ought to be easy for you to tell me. Show me the error. And here we have an interesting subject, whether they're talking about an error of fact or some, you know, grammatical issue or maybe a date issue of when a king reigned in the book of Samuel or or Kings or Chronicles or something like that. We say that the this second point, that the Bible's inerrancy is also based on the absence of any really proven, that's the key, proven, not just apparent, but proven mistakes. Now, one of the things that this pertains to is the whole fact that God has preserved his word for us and brought it to us in a way that we can be very, very confident that we have the words that God intended us to have, that is, in the original versions. We don't claim inerrancy as applying to any English translation. We don't say that the English Standard Version, which we mostly use, is is perfect and the New International Version is not perfect or the King James Version is not perfect. Those are translations. And translations have slight shades of meaning and you can't always say, well, that one's wrong Or maybe you can say, well, that, I think, approximates the the Hebrew noun better than that one does. But translations are slippery. They are not inerrant. What is inerrant is the original Hebrew Old Testament and the original Greek New Testament. That's what we claim inerrancy. Now, I may be the bearer of, of news that you've never heard before. But I've just told you that inerrancy pertains only to the original editions of the Bible. I'm ready to tell you something else maybe you don't know. Listen, we don't have those original manuscripts. What? You say the Bible is inerrant in the original manuscripts, but we don't have them. That's ridiculous. No, it isn't. It's not ridiculous at all. What we do have are second-hand copies of the originals that come from a time not more than about a century or slightly more than a century when the apostles died and when the originals were completed. And we have not one or two. Let's just take an example. Let's say the Gospel of, of Mark. We don't have one or two second-hand copies of Mark to rely on. We have hundreds 
of copies. Some of them are, are whole books. Some of them are numerous chapters. Some of them are fragments as small as my thumb. But we have hundreds and thousands of pieces that scholars can put together and say, look, as we compare these, oh, we see, look, this copyist over here apparently left a word out because 17 other copyists have that word. And we can thereby trace within one generation of the originals the, what the originals had to say. We can say that with 99% accuracy, we know what the originals said. And that 1%, if you're worried about it, does not govern or touch upon any major doctrine or moral issue that would cause a problem. Here we've got a monk who was copying who left something out by accident. He was tired. It was lunchtime. He didn't get a good night's sleep, and so he didn't accurately copy. Well, that's all right. We've got 400 others who did copy it right, and we can tell what it should have said. Here we've got somebody who was really bold and thought Mark ended a little bit abruptly at 16 and verse 8, and he made a better happily ever after ending and tacked it on. But we know because only a few people who copied him have that ending that that was not the original ending. So we can reconstruct the original Bible that God by his Spirit superintended and even these copies help us to know. You know, here's an analogy for you. If you went down, I haven't been to this place, maybe some of you have, but in Washington, D.C., they have the Bureau of Weights and Standards. Now, I'm assuming, I don't know what form it takes, but if you want to know precisely, down to a microscopic level, what is a yard or what is a meter or what is an inch, I assume that the Bureau of Weights and Standards can offer you the indelible standard that would fix it. I had to measure something just the other day, so I got out my Lufkin measuring tape. Believe me, pastors even have these things. And I measured, and okay, 48 inches exactly. Now, I don't know if the Lufkin company has got that down to a microscopic perfection, but I didn't need microscopic perfection. I just needed an inch that I hope was an inch. But I would think if they're in the business of, of making measuring devices, somewhere along the way they are checked against the gold standard that's there in Washington, D.C. to make sure an inch is an inch is an inch. Well, that's what I'm saying about the original manuscripts. We have the copies that are so close. We don't think we have any dated originals. And you tell this by the dating of the papyrus and so on but we have things that are so close that we know what the original had to say. So we don't stay awake at night and think, oh, maybe we don't have the text. No, God preserved his word so that we could be sure of it. And we can also be sure that that word that we have has in it no known contradictions or factual errors that we need to worry about. Now, are there some things that cause discussions among scholars? Uh, it seems like this king's reign ended before this king over here left his throne, but then the other book seems to say that that one ended first, so how do we work that out? There are those kinds of discussions, and the marvelous thing is, when studied, when carefully worked on, they nearly always work themselves out somehow, either in a meaning of a word or some piece of information brought alongside or an archaeological find that, that verifies something that we didn't know before. 
You know, a uh, hundred years ago, critics went around saying, well, Moses could not have written the first five books of the Bible because there was no written language when Moses was alive. People didn't write. They just talked. It was all oral. Well, guess what? Uh, the finds of, in archaeology and other studies have proven there were many written languages in the time of Moses and even quite a bit earlier. We just didn't know that a century ago. Indeed, there was written language that Moses could have used. And this is the way some of these things that people call problems or contradictions tend to melt away with further evidence or more careful study. What we have to ask is, where are these actual errors, these definitive, undeniable errors that everybody knows are in the Bible? You will sit on your park bench and wait a long time for the person to return and spell them out for you. And even if they're a Ph.D. Bible scholar, they might raise something that is an objectionable point. But the problem nearly always is, the problem is in the human mind, not in the text. It's that we don't understand everything. Well, quickly, let me close with asking this. What are the consequences? What are the consequences of denying inerrancy. It's not always a popular stand to take. Even among many people who call themselves evangelicals, when once upon a time to be an evangelical meant this was one of the planks in your platform, that you had an inerrant Bible. Today, the term evangelical, many of you may know, is a pretty slippery term. It could have a lot of things left out of it. Well, one thing is if we deny inerrancy, we have a moral problem on our hands, a theological problem, because we are saying God has claimed to reveal himself and make himself known in this book, but he made mistakes. He left things out. He contradicted himself. And the bigger problem then is not what we're saying about this leather-bound book with gold-edged pages and print and ribbons hanging out of the bottom of it. It's what we're saying about God himself. Do we serve a fallible God? A God whose communication skills are lacking? Are you really ready to say that? If you cannot claim that God perfectly superintended his word, that's what you're saying. Secondly, if we deny inerrancy, we're making ourselves and our intellectualism and our studies, the judgment upon the Word of God. I know more about this book than anybody else, we're saying. I sure don't. I've been studying this book for a generation now. Lots of study. I don't say by any means that I'm the greatest scholar there is, but I've studied this book long and hard, and I've studied those who study the book. And I'm not ready to put myself and my judgment above it to say, here's a mistake. I haven't found it yet. Thirdly, a serious thing that's a consequence is this. Church history of all denominations bears out uh, something very sobering. Whether you're talking about a denomination, a particular church, a seminary, a local congregation, the pastor of that congregation, a particular scholar, anyone or any organization that gives up in a wholehearted affirmation of biblical inerrancy has found in church history that they rarely survive 
more than 10 or 20 years of being a vigorous practitioner of Orthodox Christianity. Everything starts to go when you let this thing go. This is the greatest slippery slope that there is, folks. When you start to say God's Word is fallible, it has that, oh, don't worry, we just need to see Jesus, and, and we just hear what Jesus has to say, even if the Bible makes errors. Boy, that slope is greased, so slippery, you won't even know how fast you're going down it. And you'll have churches like the second hymn we sang today that have the form of godliness, but they've lost the power. You know what I'm talking about. The lamp of any individual ministry of a pastor, a church, a denomination, a seminary, a Christian college is sure to go out within a few decades when those involved can no longer say, I have a book from God that is boundless perfection. The term evangelical should no longer apply to those who cannot say that because they very soon, within another generation, will show that they're unrecognizable as those who love the gospel of Christ. The year I was ordained, ancient history, 1974, Time magazine ran its usual, you know, the Christmas, if you're familiar with Time and with News, I don't think Newsweek publishes anymore, but, you know, these magazines used to, at Christmas or New Year's, they always had a, a religion cover article. It's kind of like they had to bow in that direction once a year. And uh, Time had a, its article the last week of 1974. How true is the Bible was the question on the cover. I thought, oh boy, here we go. But I looked it up, or looked into it, read it, and I thought, okay, these fellows are liberal in their outlook. They're going to cut the Bible to ribbons. Well, I was greatly surprised, I have to say. The final paragraph of a rather well-balanced article in Time magazine said this, quote, After more than 20 centuries of facing the heaviest scientific and critical guns that can be brought to bear against it, the Bible has not only survived, but is perhaps better for the siege it has had to face. Even on the basis of historical fact, they said, the Scriptures seem more acceptable now than they did when rationalists first began their attack in the 19th century. I said, hooray, Time Magazine. You got something right for once. Well, Augustine said it 1,500 years ago when he said, when you discover in the Scriptures anything you did not previously believe, believe it unhesitatingly. For the canonical books of Scripture are entirely free of falsehood. Somebody said inerrancy was invented in the modern era. Augustine was saying it 1,500 years ago. Martin Luther said, quote, We must make a great difference between God's word and the word of man. For a man's word is like a little sound that flies into the air and soon vanishes. But the word of God is greater than heaven or earth, greater than heaven and hell, for it is part of the very power of God and it endures everlastingly. No wonder Luther was part of a movement that shook the world. And I give you this last word from his compatriot, John Calvin. Calvin said, we owe to Scripture the same reverence we owe to God because it has its source 
in God. Amen. Let it be so. May we love and long for that word the way the psalmist did in that 119th psalm. You said his words. I hope you can go back and look at those words and say, Oh, God, how I love your law. It stands perfect in the heavens. It meets all my need. It satisfies my thirst. It changes my life. Thank you, God, for your precious, unerring word. Father, again we praise you as we have these weeks. We thank you that we don't have to struggle to defend your word. It defends itself. Thank you that we see Christ so perfectly drawn. You, in human form, come to be our Savior and Lord, revealed in your perfect word. Thank you, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen.